the incomparable. Number 431, November 2018. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I am your host, Jason Snell. In this episode, we're talking about a classic film released 50 years ago, which is why we're going to talk about it now, why we haven't talked about it until now, uh, is because I, I remember watching this a few years ago and not enjoying it and deciding I wasn't going to watch it again for a long time. And uh, so I watched it for this podcast. And guess what? I did enjoy it. So that's good news. It's 2001, A Space Odyssey, directed by Stanley Kubrick, based on a uh, a screenplay and novel pair by Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. And uh, you may have seen it. You may know it. It's famous for so many different reasons that we'll probably get into. Uh, and on its 50th anniversary, I thought it was worth talking about it. At last, joining me to talk about this old movie, or perhaps middle-aged movie, are the following wonderful people who are joining me now. Dr. Drang is here. Hello. It's a movie from the 60s, and I would expect Dr. Drang to be here. Hello, Jason. It's good I to have you I enjoy working with people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't trust you already. Philip Michaels is here. Hello. Hello. What a thrill it is to be here to discuss Stanley Kubrick's fourth best movie. <laughs> wow. It's still a good movie. Oh, yeah, fourth okay, is I know, good. I know. He's an accomplished director. He is. Moises Julian is also here. Hello. Affirmative, Jason. Oh, boy. I read you. Oh, no. That's terrifying. John Gruber is back. Hello. Hello. I'm here. I'm I'm very happy. We save you for the classics. We, we tactically <laughs> deploy you for the classics, only the classics. And John Syracuse is also here. Open the podcast door, Snell. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Surprised it took that long, but we got there. All right. Well, um, we will be, since in the spirit of this movie, we will be a small tribe of apes that, <laughs> as we begin. Hitting each other over the head with femurs. Yes, that's time. right. Somebody has to throw, throw their microphone into the air. Yeah, we're guarding our, our water hole. Uh, this movie famous for, I, I was thinking about it while I was watching it, that, that the um, the segments of this movie, like, especially for the, like, what does it all mean kind of theme stuff, like, you... You don't. You could probably get away without the whole first part in Africa, where the you know future human beings who have not who have a lot of evolution to, left to do are fighting over a waterhole. Um, but it does help plot wise in the sense that you get the very strong suggestion when the monolith appears and then they begin using tools in order to kill other of their kind uh, that. This is, you know, they're being kind of influenced and uplifted and humanity is being, you know, perhaps uh, changed or certainly at least monitored, but probably changed by the monolith. Um, you get that. And also, like, thematically, this movie is so much about, like, the tools that humans use and the progression of humanity that it's it's uh, it's a very important part of the movie. My recollection, speaking of that that time that I think I was a little bit sleepy and I was probably watching it on TV somewhere where it was it had commercials and went for four hours. Um, I remember the monkey, uh, sorry, the ape stuff being interminable and it's not it's very straightforward so let's let's start there what are people's feelings about uh about apes and uh and femurs and monoliths well i'll sort of jumping off the what you were talking about there i remember the first time i saw uh 2001 and um it's it, it's hilarious to me now that um the part of the movie that people think of when they think of 2001 actually doesn't start till about an hour into the movie mm-hmm. so I, I i think that's great no the the, the it's like you say the you, you would think the first time you 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 sit there and see the scene with the apes you are you and 20 minutes of the movie 
are is just overture and apes and you're thinking what the hell is going on here what have i gotten myself into i i think the first time you 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 feel that way and then the second time third time fourth time through when you're watching the movie it, it the the pieces begin to to come together in in a way that, uh-huh. that this oh so Yes, the monolith is the uh, is the connecting device in this, and and its influence on how different people and non people are acting. Yeah, the monolith is also the second best character in the movie. <laughs> well, it's it's one of the most human characters in yes. the movie. That's for sure. <laughs> this is another thing that movies, tons of movies, do uh, after this. Like, so I watch this with my kids. It gives me an interesting perspective about uh, how many, kind of like Blade Runner, how many things later were influenced by this movie. The idea of opening a sci-fi movie with some sort of uh, scene from prehistoric times or from early man times, that's done all the time now. Like, whatever whatever the MacGuffin is or whatever aliens uh, arrive or some sort of thing involving spaceships, uh, it adds a certain weight to, to show the distant past. But in modern, the modern take on this thing is that scene lasts, like, 75 seconds Mm -hmm. (laughs) not 20 minutes right um and i think that's kind of missing the point the point is not we're going to sketch an epic story arc by spanning a huge amount of time you actually spend time in this section not just enough to see olden times and the only thing was there fast forward to today like that's that that's where it ends but the whole thing of you know obviously there's the 60s slash 70s movie pacing of the slow you know i'll get you into the movie with a bunch of still shots of landscapes whatever but eventually there is more or less a little miniature story here about what it's like to be one of these eight men during this time and then eventually the two tribes and uh you know they're yelling over the waterhole and i feel feel like it's it's on it's the correct tone for the movie which is you know no dialogue to sort of settle you in for for what you're in for because you have to sort of get into the right mindset i feel like to appreciate the whole rest of the movie and this this part does that very well chills you out uh you get to sort of appreciate the subtle details which if you've seen this movie a hundred times as i probably have you pick up like these tiny little cues and start reading everything into every little detail because it's a kubrick movie um and i i'm kind of sad that so many movies that came after it figured that the most important point was just to show old stuff before you show your science fiction stuff for a minute and a half. And that's not what this is about at all. How how great. How many of you guys watched the movie recently? My son and I I took my son hadn't seen it. He's 14, ninth grade, uh, had never seen it. I never allowed him to see it until he could. I wanted him to see it on a big screen. So we went uh, during the 50th anniversary re-release. I know Moises has seen it probably a handful of times during this this re-release. I, I we did not get to see a 70 millimeter print of the new one. We got to see, we went to an IMAX theater, but the IMAX print was better. I've been to see 70 millimeter prints before. The IMAX we, thing we went to see was the best I've ever seen the movie look. It was so bright, it, it was stunning. Um, and, and one from the Dawn of Man sequence, the one thing I've seen the movie a bunch of times. And the one thing I'd always, I, I, I go years without seeing it. And I always forget is that point where the, the mountain lion jumps off the rock and attacks one. Oh, oh yeah. That's very sudden. Hey, how, how did they do that? <laughs> but B it, it was just, it just comes out of nowhere. And you know, do you guys ever notice this? It, Moises, you probably know exactly the term for it, but whenever you're watching a movie or a TV show and somebody is about to get hit by a car, 
you see it three shots beforehand. Mm-hmm. There, there, there's like, it's seemingly nobody knows how to direct a scene where somebody shockingly gets hit by a car without telegraphing it, right? There, there's just like a certain way, like, oh, this guy's going to get hit by a car. Uh, whereas that mountain lion jumping off the rock, it just comes out of nowhere. That's because th- this the, this movie uses a lot of the 60s and 70s like nailed down camera thing where there's just the cameras nailed down in the wide shot and the scene is going to play out and that camera is not going to move. It's not going to give right. you any... It's it's yeah, like right. taking pleading the fifth. It's not going right. to give you any hint about where the action might be or what might be happening. It's like the picture is framed and then the camera will not... Like that conference room scene, I'm like, this camera has not moved in, in five and a half minutes. <laughs> well, that, that's also... That's Stanley not just Kubrick. a 60s, 70s. That's a Stanley Kubrick thing yeah, yeah i, I, I but, put the but, camera here and i am not moving it yeah it's it, it's a it's a stanley kubrick thing that that he he borrowed from from yasujiro ozu the japanese auteur who i mean in japanese cinema is is spoken of in hushed tones the same way that akira kurosawa is but because ozu didn't make samurai movies that became popular in the west people don't talk about him as much or they just kind of dismiss him as oh that guy that didn't move the camera but directors like kubrick took lessons from specifically him and how you can absolutely astonish people with the detail in a frame by just locking the camera down and leaving it. Um, and, and Kubrick's background as a photographer, you know, that that combined with him seeing what Ozu was able to do with a still frame, um, but do his own stuff with it, where unlike Ozu's movies, which are mostly just close up shots of people's faces, uh, Kubrick would just throw stuff in from one side of the frame to the other and kept you wondering. And I, I would, if there was a specialized term for it, John, I mean, I, I think you, uh, you, you said it with telegraphed. Everybody telegraphs motion of it coming into the frame where they do tracking shots, uh, where they, you know, follow the car that's about to, you know, T-bone somebody. Um, but he, he doesn't do any of that. He just lets the action enter the frame instead. Actually, the way you can tell with the car accidents is they pointedly uh, put the oncoming car into your blind spot. Like they will do an extreme close up or point the camera away so you no longer can see from that direction. Or like it's always the same in horror movies. Like if they're, if someone is up against the left edge of the frame as the camera is moving and you can no longer see what's behind them. Right, well, they're you about can to see turn around. You know that there's going to be somebody right, there. Exactly. Right? Yeah. They, they, you want to set geography too. And that's in the case of the, I think it's a cheetah because it's Africa. Like yeah. it's just like, oh, what the hell? I didn't know there were rocks up there. Like that the yeah, cheetah could right. be up there. See, like just no idea. An animal just enters the frame, and and the the locked camera thing. Like it's in contrast to the more modern practice of the hyperactive camera and the shaky camera, right? Where right, not right. only do we not lock the camera, we can't even do like simple camera moves anymore. Everything has got to be its handheld, and and it's like you're in on the action, and the the camera's going underneath the the wheels of the driving car, and popping out through the sunroof, and you know all all the modern things you can do with uh with camera techniques. And so I, I always, when I watch older movies, I'm always amazed at how much the camera doesn't move even even in you know they have three or four camera moves and that's all they had occasionally they get a crane and if you're really lucky you get a helicopter uh but you know kubrick didn't use any of that and i imagine uh he still wouldn't if he was alive today well no and, and the, the thing about this and the, and the lock camera here early on is that he's he's setting you up for some spectacular camera movements later mm-hmm. on I and mean, it, it's what makes the later camera movements so good is because he's been so still up mm. until that point. Yeah. So thematically, 
the idea here that there are uh, there are these people who are going to be they're they're eventually going to evolve into human beings. These are they're more like chimps at this point. But this the idea that this is our sort of common ancestor with chimps, or it's just after they've kind of diverged. But it's very chimp like animals that we we read to be they will have one day be humanity, and we don't realize when we first see it that we may literally be seeing the creation of humanity because with the monolith appearing it's very clear that something from outer space has come and they start using tools as weapons as a result of touching the monolith. So the strong implication there is that the monolith has actually pushed us along toward being an intelligent species. I think that's interesting and it sets up like the other kind of things that happen in this movie. But I think it's also really telling that the gift that the monolith grants us is the ability to pick up big weapons and smash the the, the other guy to death, which is what happens. It's not a particularly pretty thing. It's not like, oh, how noble humanity is now that they've been blessed by the monolith. It's like, no, pick up the, the leg bone of somebody and just beat the leader of the other tribe to death and the rest of the tribe will run away. <laughs> you could also argue that the, the, the monolith says, you can use tools and, and yeah. yes. tools are wonderful. And the monkey goes, got it. Use tools to kill, kill. things. <laughs> no, no, that's not what I fair, said. Fair. Well, you got to get on top of the food chain. I feel like that's the whole part of the thing is in the beginning, you see the, the, the apes hanging around with these, uh, with the, what, a capybara or whatever. or whatever. Right, and they're all sitting next to each other, and they're both foraging for the same stupid scraps of, like, whatever's left of this animal and the plants or whatever, and it's like, your food, you're sitting right next to the food, but they're not at the top of the food chain, as evidenced by, well, who's at the top of the food chain? They're freaking cheetah. It's cheetah, That's yeah. who's at the top of the food chain. <laughs> who's, who's eating other people, right? So what, the first thing they show when, the, the you know, he gets the bone and he's smashing it is, is that, that herbivore going down. It's like, yeah. you, you know, if we yeah. want to be... The, the you know what is it the top of the pyramid from the right stuff we're gonna be to get to the top of that pyramid uh you gotta you know don't sit there next these are all these are all stakes sitting next to you all day so and yes they kill each other too the thing is you have to believe that these things were killing each other without tools too it's more efficient with uh yeah. but like yeah they're fighting over the watering hole just with yelling before but they could kill each other with their bare hands too the whole point is mastery over their environment so you're not starving to this so you're yeah. not hiding in your cave listening to the cheetah uh, make noises at night going, you know, get get on top of that, you know, and master your environment. Again, perhaps not what the monolith intended, if indeed it intended anything at all. Uh, but that's the vibe I get from this is kind of what it's like not to be at the top of the food chain. And it kind of sucks. And how to triumphantly, you know... Uh, become the masters of this planet essentially i love that shot where the where the the ape i don't know I, I don't know if he had a name in the screenplay or what but the main the one who first decides to use a tool and he picks it up and starts playing with it and he, he could it, it's such a hard thing to do cinematically is in a you know obviously the monkeys aren't going to speak but to to convey this guy's having an idea mm-hmm. and and he starts beating things with it and i just wonder you know with all the you know all the the tales of many many takes that kubrick would take like how many times did he have to shoot that to get one where like when he hit the one bone and it flies jumps up, up in the, the air the, flies yeah. up in the air yeah and it's just like you just see it it's just like you know you can actually see an idea dawning in this this guy's head you know to answer your question in the imdb credits it is ape 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 attacked by leopard. Okay, good. I love that guy. Ape, ape yeah, he's killed by moon, moon watcher. watcher. Yes. Yeah. Ape. The, uh, All right. The, the opening shot, I should say, before we even see the apes, is that shot where you see the um, the moon with the earth with the sun. 
Um, mm. which I think is important actually that we see that at the beginning because it's like, Hey, we're talking about space, but actually what we're seeing is, you know, millions of years ago in time, um, mm. when we go down to that planet, but it's all, you know, space is still out there and the monolith came from somewhere and all of that. Um, and to Phil's point about the tool usage, I mean, in the end, that is the brilliant moment here, which is we've seen them use the femur bone to beat the guy to death and all of that. But the moment of just sheer magic that ends this segment is throwing the bone up into the air and the smash cut to a spaceship, right? Because it's that, that's the moment of like, yes, and humans humans continue to build tools to this day. That's, that's it, it draws a, <laughs> just draws a straight line and yep. it just reads perfectly. Of like, if you want to like, you know, the shortcut like five years later, you can do four million years later pretty easily mm-hmm. with that one cut. The thing about that whole opening segment, though, that it doesn't I wouldn't say it bothers me, but it's it to me is sort of under commented upon is the idea that we needed evolutionary help from the outside. The, the, I mean, the whole the science fictional premise of this movie is that that intelligence arose on Earth because the monolith allowed it to happen or made it happen or at least accelerated it. Right. 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 That, right. You know, it, it made it happen faster. And that's sort of a weird idea that we needed evolutionary help. And there's sort of a chicken and an egg problem there, because whoever it is who made the monoliths, it, whether they got help when they were at that stage right. or at, at some point somewhere in the universe, there had to be intelligent life that came about it naturally. Right. But did they, <laughs> right? de- did they had- decide this is one of the mysteries of the monolith that I kind of like thinking right. about is did they decide there's not we're alone or there are not enough intelligent races in the universe. So we're going to help it along. We're going to send a probe out to I think that's what Arthur C. Clarke's intent is that this is a self-replicating machine that's been sent out into the galaxy basically to find life and push it along and then also then leave a trail so that they can test it like when it gets out into space then it'll trigger this signal which will open the stargate and then we'll talk to them or whatever the hell happens at the end of the movie right like that's Mm. that's kind of the science fictional premise that's that's embedded here but it is interesting right that it's like it's saying yeah we're we're not the product of of straight on evolution we had to be helped by aliens it it could have just been a timeline thing where it's like all right speed it up uh you know monkeys you're not doing a great job here but (laughs) like that's that's one of the interesting things about uh, about the monolith is the question obviously in the movie it is just a big black thing right like it has there are no special effects associated with it it's just literally it doesn't move it it doesn't have glowing things on the surface you the the main special effect is the music that plays when when you get near it and start touching it But that's part of the film score right and so it's possible to look at it and i always kind of looked at it when i first saw this as, as a kid that the monolith isn't magic or technology that's indistinguishable from magic like it is literally just a black solid one by four by nine right that's that's all that's literally all there is to it and the reason it accelerates our evolution is by merely seeing this thing that what we would call today man-made right but basically not a natural formation at all it's just enough to kick that one Hmm. ape's mind into the idea that you can form the world in to, to your desires like that you that, that you don't have to accept everything as it is it's not trees and rocks and grass and everything you've come like this thing is clearly not a tree or a rock or grass or anything it is so unlike anything you've ever encountered that it triggers in your mind a new way of thinking about the possibilities right and and, the, and that's it and that it doesn't you know maybe it's impervious to heat or whatever like and maybe you can't chip it or break it but other than that it's not electronic doesn't it doesn't have mental waves that go into the monkey's minds and and changes their dna none of that is just literally a simple non-natural shape to to make you and and i think that 
that would be enough perhaps to kickstart something to to ensure that it happens or to give it a give it a push where it's needed like they would say in uh, uh voyagers there we go thank you i don't think it's necessarily true that it doesn't give the kick by doing something through extrasensory perception or, or whatever it could be i'm just saying like the thing i used to like to think about is it doesn't need to do anything except for exist no i don't no i don't think i don't think that's true because it it, it does things it does things i mean when when they uncover it on the moon it sends the signal yeah that's the thing that's the tripwire of saying uh you know by the time you get good enough to get up to the moon and dig this thing up because you notice a magnetic anomaly yeah we're we gonna will send, send out a signal, signal to say to hey th- these people have made it kind of like the warp signature in star trek to just send out a signal to the rest of the universe or the people who put it there to say all oh, these guys these guys made it they made it to the moon they dug the thing up that's that's a signaling mechanism but i'm saying to for the evolution thing with just with the monkeys does it have to do something it could that's i think it's the more obvious interpretation but i like to think about it as it it just it just was there and did nothing and the movie doesn't show us anything other than the presence of the monolith and the playing of the music it's the playing of the music it it gives it gives us the impression that it that it's able to have both an active and a passive effect on things just its presence alone is disruptive enough uh and and just like the very uh, the very kind of argument or twisting yourself in knots trying to figure out what it is what it represents what it means um, and and to Jason's point about the the interference and evolution sort of a thing, uh, Ridley Scott has ended up effectively twisting himself in knots over just that very thing in the way that he's been making these alien prequels, where the the, the interference in human evolution has been the core theme of what he's making in these six or seven different alien movies that he's apparently going to make before he kicks a bucket. Um, and it's 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 this central. Uh, mystery arguments, certainty. Uh, people think of it different ways depending on on their particular take on on what the monolith's purpose and what its role in the narrative is. And we all have pretty strong feelings one way or another. You know, unless we dismiss the film out of hand and you know think it's garbage. And people like that are garbage and can be left <laughs> out by the curb. Uh, but there, that that that's one of the things that I love most about this movie is it's not. It's not so much the thing that you go, you know what, it's it's rainy on a Saturday afternoon. I think I'll, I'll throw this thing on. This will be a good rollicking good time. Um, but it, it is this uh, hopelessly cerebral movie that people have tried to imitate, tried to do their own take on what they thought Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke were going for. And 50 years later, it, it's, it's a true testament to the quality of the film that we're still arguing about it. And we still have that kind of I, – I heard this, this magical thing in Drang's voice that was kind of that, ah, hold on. You know, that, that kind of, well, okay, your, your opinion may be valid, but I, I also think, um, you know, this kind of thing. The whole thing is that this movie does something that – and I say this a lot when we watch older movies – like that I don't think would be allowed now, which is – it's it's ambiguous. There isn't a special effect where a brainwave thing comes out of the model. Like it's just it is what it is, and you can say other than the, other than the Strauss playing, uh, it, it is you just kind of get to decide what you think, and um, and that is yes. Th- how many term papers have been written? How many arguments have been had after after seeing it? Before we move on to talk about killer computers and spaceships and things like that, let me take a break and tell you about. Our sponsor, this episode of The Incomparable, is brought to you by Pingdom. Pingdom is a company that makes website performance monitoring easy. Everybody loves using fast websites. You want your website to be fast. You want your website to be running smoothly. And you want to know when it isn't. Pingdom 
helps keep your favorite sites online. Netflix, Amazon, Spotify, Twitter, BuzzFeed, Slack. They all trust Pingdom to take care of their website monitoring. Websites can get pretty complicated, but you can monitor any site transaction on your site with Pingdom. So your user registration page, your login pages, checking out whatever you can think of. Individual functions of your site can be checked to make sure they're running. Your site may be up, but not functional. And so it doesn't help that it's up if it's not working and you can't sell stuff or do whatever you need to do. Pingdom cares about your users having the smoothest site experience possible. And if disaster strikes, you will be the first to know. So you can get it fixed before hopefully anybody else notices. Super easy to get started. All Pingdom needs to get started is your URL and they'll take care of the rest. That's it. Go to pingdom.com slash Snell right now. You'll get a 14-day free trial. No credit card required. And when you sign up, use the code Snell at checkout. You'll get 30% off your first invoice. Thank you, Pingdom, for supporting the incomparable. Let's move on out of the past because we have we have been apes spending twenty years in uh, in ape time. We should move forward to that spaceship that is flying around, and uh, and we end up it with a uh, a Pan Am. That's a brand. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll come back. I had to explain that to my kids. Yeah, that was pro- that was sort of a real brand back then, but it isn't anymore. A space plane that is taking a guy who we learn is Haywood Floyd uh, to the space station, and he's on a mission. He's on this plane basically by himself, other than the pilots and the uh, stewardess who's got the Velcro shoes, who walks around and serves him. There's some amazing stuff in this segment uh, as we follow Haywood Floyd, um, who, by the way, as an aside, is the protagonist of the book and movie 2010 that Arthur C. Clarke wrote a, a sequel to this 15 years later and they made a movie of it. Yes, in nine, in nine years he becomes Roy Scheider. He turns so into very, Roy Scheider. But we're not going to talk about That's a different episode. Um, but the, he's he's on a man on a mission and what I was struck by this, I mean there's a lot here, right? There is the design of these ships, uh, the design of the interiors, the screens. He's watching a movie basically or he's asleep and a, a movie is playing in front of him and the, and the uh, stewardess uh, uh, turns it off, uh, which I think is a pretty remarkable, like some of the extrapolations of future tech in this film, in this segment of this film are really remarkable and in this film in general. Um, and you've got the music playing and there are very long uh, lingering uh, shots of the of the, uh, the kind of the ballet of the spaceships as he goes on his ship to the uh to the space station um and then at the space station there is i and i again i had forgotten this at the space station the plot picks up because he it has he goes through immigration through a kiosk that's very similar to the kiosk that i go through when i'm re-entering the united states kind of funny um and he's stopped by a guy who's like well we got to have this we talk and you're going to come over here but then he gets waylaid by a group that includes a bunch of soviets who want to know the real truth about what's going on at clavius base and he kind of has to lie to them and 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 then gets taken away and it's very much like um a a spy story that's going on here with uh with haywood floyd which is funny because you know the movie goes in a very different direction in the last segment Mm -hmm. but in this segment there's a lot of that kind of going on where there there is a secret at the moon and and haywood floyd has been sent to figure out what's going on and then when he when they finally have a meeting he basically says you know we have a cover story and nobody can tell anybody anything about what we found here and then we find out that they've uncovered the monolith uh 
in the middle of Tycho Crater, and uh, and it's very clearly you know of alien origin. So this segment, I, you know, the, a lot of weird stuff happens at the end of the movie, but there's so much in this segment in terms of the space plane, the uh, uh, the music, uh, the technology. So I just wanted to open it up to if people who want to talk about this. Jason, segment. if if I if I may, for historical context, as something of an opening statement for this section of the film, um, a thing that. I have to remind myself each time I watch this is that space movies were not like this at all, at all. As a, as a kid watching 2001 in, you know, like 1980 or 1985 or something like that, when I, whenever I first encountered it, um, having had a whole like full diet of Star Trek and all of that, I have to remind myself now, um, 2001 came out before the first crewed Apollo mission. So all of human spaceflight up to that point had been like one or two people in a very, very, very tiny capsule. Our experience with what space travel would be like was almost entirely the province of science fiction writers. So that's the other remarkable thing about this is this is this is. This has a lot of stuff in it that we take for granted now because we've seen space shuttle missions and things like that, that that we had no frame of reference. There was no reality of that in 1968. To that end, this is probably my least favorite segment of the movie, and it's just I can't divorce myself from seeing it through modern eyes. I, I, I can appreciate the the technical achievements for 1968 of making the pen float and, and making the, the, the ship rotate and, and all that. But too much of the segment for me is in the future, we will go to Howard Johnson's in space. And <laughs> the branding in the future, is strong. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and the space airport will be very comfortable. I do appreciate the scene where he is looking at the 10 steps to, to using the zero gravity toilet and, <laughs> and biting his knuckle. Very <laughs> flummoxed. I do I, as someone who gets flummoxed by instructions that, that that hit home with me i appreciated the uh like i mean maybe this helps to have been a kid at the right time but my childhood was i guess at, maybe at the tail end of the absolute fascination with what it will be like in the future when we extrapolate along a linear or possibly accelerating scale from going to the moon right because like you're born and we don't go anywhere and you're growing up and we're on the moon so basically but by the time you're an adult we'll be on mars and then we'll be at like and so there was this massive fascination in the 60s 70s and even into the 80s of futurism about what the future will be like if current trends continue how many of us all had those like time life books about that basically had pictures that could have been right out of 2001 that were made you know decades later right it's like here's what it's gonna here's what travel will be like and here's what the telephone will be like and here's what our colonies and bases will be like and here's what fashion will be like in the future and it was just this immense fascination i think to watch this the scene of the the space pan am space plane arriving at the, at the space hojos right and that whole business I still am able to connect back to my fascination as a as a young kid of just show me everything about what it's going to be like when I grow up. Show me all. And this was very, you know, relatively hard sci fi where they were they were following the rules that the thing had to spin so that people would stick to the ground. If it didn't, things floated around that, you know, here's what a space plane might be shaped like based on our current knowledge of like sonic booms and all this other stuff and just. Like, I want to see what it's going to be like when I'm a grown-up and we're on Mars. Show me all the futuristic things. And that's how it can sustain my interest still, because I, I can reach back to that mindset. In the modern era where you're not fascinated about, please show me every aspect. Because, again, it's obviously not our future, right? 
we'll talk about later, Hal didn't come in 1992, right? But I'm still able to put myself back in the position where this was all ahead of us. And it seemed like a, a reasonable extrapolation of where we were now. And that, I think, is the correct headspace to be in to enjoy it. Maybe not quite the same, but like the thing that it reminded me of is the uh, the ridiculous amount of time spent uh, traveling around the Enterprise in Star Trek The Motion Picture, which I think is a different headspace you have to be in to appreciate. Yeah, yeah. but I think very clearly the makers of that film thought that 2001 did lots of long, slow, lingering shots yeah. of spaceships so they could, too. Yeah, the talent matters. Yeah, but like, but the, the, I mean, for me, the reason I'm I was able to tolerate it here is because I thought this is this is going to be my future. This is like because they're taking it seriously and they're thinking as hard as they can. Like the, the one thing they got right, look, portrait video <laughs> that the screen that he talks to his daughter on is not yeah. landscape orientation. They they found, they predicted the future. They got one thing right. Well, and BBC Twelve as well was also portrait. I like the Haywood Floyd stuff. I don't. I'm not so down on it, but it does. It does happen. I mean. It, it gets discarded, but I do. I do like that it, for a moment. It's like, am I watching like a space James Bond movie here? Like, yeah. what's his secret plan? And and that's a they could have made that movie, the, the secret Haywood Floyd and the secret on the moon. But it, that that is not the movie that we're watching. <laughs> well, what's nice? What's nice about this section of the of the movie is, is exactly what John said. It, it it sort of takes you into this time life books. Um, you know, what's it going to be like? And as I watch it, because, of course, I know that essentially nothing in this section matters, um, <laughs> th- th- that I like to look at not the big things that, you know, the predictive things that were wrong. Because this is also the part where, you know, these are not explorers uh, on these ships. These are people who are just, they're, they're, you know, a little bit beyond everyday people, but there's lots of them there. There are stewardesses. There are the hot space chicks in pink going around. It's almost every day by this point. And it's funny to see the little things that are wrong about it that don't matter. But, you know, the thing about the phone booth, which very much like the zero gravity toilet is, is kind of a, kind of an an interesting little joke thing. And they've got the, the old uh, Ma Bell logo on the on the phone booth but that the velcro shoes you don't as we know now from years of watching people on the space shuttle and the space station people don't need to be stuck to anything to move around they just fly around and it, it works perfectly that's way more expensive to film though yeah that's that's well, really well, yeah, later they, but it costs they a lot. didn't have the is. planes that they could fly in and do the <laughs> steep dives so that people go flying through the air this is this is the disadvantage of practical effects uh, especially back then. But, uh, you know, I, one of the things that I think is really interesting about this is is the phone booth and the idea that someone like Arthur Clarke, who was way ahead of people in thinking about communications and global satellites and s- using satellites for communication, nobody thought that we would have phones with us. Yeah. You know, you go to a phone booth. One of my favorite... Um, <laughs> pieces, uh, one of my favorite books is uh, Delaney's Babel 17. And these are people who are spanning the galaxy, flying around. Uh, you know, they, they don't have to worry about uh, the speed of light. They can communicate instantly. But when they want to talk to one another, they go to a phone booth, just, just like <laughs> we do in 2001. It's, it's amazing. And he dials a number on a number pad. I mean, I don't, <laughs> like, of course. 
Yeah, because they, they didn't have Of course, have he has that, to yeah. remember a number. He doesn't, it's, well, of course, because it's a phone booth, it doesn't remember because it doesn't have his, you know. Yeah, it's putting a card, too. He has to, he has to dip his uh, yeah. dip his credit card in there or phone Star card. Trek yes. did that better, though. Star Trek with its communicators and everything are basically, you know, flip phones. Only no, no screens on them, but at least they didn't have to go to a place and sit down. I have to say, for a 50-year-old movie, I look at this and say... I am surprised that it is it is as good as it is in terms of yeah, accuracy. They got, they got a lot right, but it is yeah. it is and it is delightful as as Doctor Drang said. It kind of doesn't matter, um, and so I do delight in the details and the details that are wrong, the assumptions that are made. There was a time when I really would have chuckled at all the branding that happens on the space station, but in our current era. Uh, if yeah, we had public right. access to a space station, every single thing, it's like an airport. Everything is branded. Every single thing has a brand. Even if the people behind the brand don't actually operate it, it is licensed and placed there. So, Dr. Drang, when you and I go to the space station Alpha, we will go to the hot dog place, for example. Yes, that's and right. And it will be branded. It'll be... And, I, and only mustard, no ketchup. <laughs> that's right. So, it's just, that's how, that's how it's going to work. At the, at, at, you at you the mentioned station. the stewardesses and the, and the pink lady. That's another thing this movie got right, is that sexism is, is alive and <laughs> One thing that really stuck out to me with this last viewing, and it's funny, it, it, Kubrick films are so filled with details that every time, you know, and, and to me, they're usually so emotionally exhausting that I can't watch over and over again i think the only one i can really just watch i could watch like two three days in a row is strange love just because it's it's even even though it is ultimately well, it's so funny it is even though it's ultimately the darkest because, because it's like the destruction of civilization it plays so lightly um but I, I so i go years between watching 2001 i don't i don't think i've watched it on a tv set in a very long time, maybe over a decade. This is the first time I've seen the movie in high definition because all of my oh other my viewings God. were VHS standard def. I've never seen it in a movie theater. So that You've was great. You've got to see it in a movie theater. You've got to. Let it's me tell so you, great HD big. is a major upgrade over standard def for 2001. <laughs> One of the things that stuck out to me for the first time in this viewing was that his conversation with his daughter, I never really paid attention to it before, but it's like, it's actually very funny because he's like, this is very important. Please be sure to tell mommy this and and it's like there is no way Not mommy is getting this chance. message no. <laughs> there yeah. is a realistic child in a she movie barely, which you really she, she's right. all well you're gonna be at my party tomorrow right honey right. i'm, I'm the in the outer space <laughs> i'm right. on the moon what does she want for her birthday more phones i think it was yeah, <laughs> a nonsense it, child answer that actually makes some kind of sense if you think about it it is so obvious that there is no chance in hell that she's telling her mom that he no. called <laughs> there's and why does none. she have a british accent well, because you know who it was? That's Vivian Kubrick. Uh, yeah, I know. I'm saying like it doesn't fit, doesn't fit in the movies, but she is she's clearly a, an actual yeah. child reflecting what it's like to talk to an actual child on FaceTime. Right. right. Who isn't really isn't really into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. She's squirming around Again, the whole time. Some of the stuff they got, they got really right. They really did. Yeah. Yeah. Before we get to the moon, there are a couple things I, I want to say. First, there's the Fred, the Fred Astaire scene um, of the stewardess walking, you know, going into the circle and walking upside down, which, you know, was obviously done the same way they, they did it in the 40s when Fred Astaire danced on the ceiling. Yep. But in addition to that, so that you get you get that kind of wild feeling. And then as she walks off upside down to us, it's the next shot where she goes into the cockpit to feed the pilots, where she comes in upside down and then is one of the camera movements that I was talking about before. He swings the camera 180 to turn her right side up. Right. And it's, and it's a Black beautiful Panther. thing. It's just a beautiful <laughs> thing. Yeah, it is. And I mean, there there is more of this trickery that happens when we get to 
um, discovery. Oh yeah, but, absolutely. But this is a nice little bit. I I mean, yeah, the the Velcro shoes are there largely because they they needed to have them move around and they couldn't you need do, to be able to walk do all that in zero g but there there is enough there to to i mean cuz that's part of the delight of this part of the movie is what is space going to be like cuz it's there's no gravity it's going to be crazy you're going to be able to do all these things and like and that's that's all borne out like we've seen it all now for real but this movie was really delighted by it because they hadn't seen it before i find it interesting that in so many other space movies where we where we jump from one time to another, we never go to the actual present day of 1968. And the closest we get to that is just the echoes of 1968 that we get in this the future of 1968. Um, that's that to me I, is is something that I think a lot of people who have tried to do something 2001 like have leaned too heavily into going more either more into depth than they did here or really explicitly go you know landmarking that 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 there were you know this and that thread between the present day of when that movie was made and the future world and time that that they're taking us to so on the moon haywood floyd has a briefing with a bunch of people there he gives a whole sort of speech about how they need to keep a secret we discovered that they have unearthed this monolith that we saw with the apes in the first scene it's been found and they know that it's alien so the plot thickens this is why they kept it a secret they're concerned that everybody's going to freak out this is important when when uh doc when you said it doesn't matter this is basically why hal goes crazy although that's debatable is the idea that they want to keep a, a secret from everybody because they're afraid how people will react and that is and and so that is the instruction that hal is given and the strong implication i would argue is that that drives him crazy <laughs> but um you know that's so they go and then anyway they go to the, to, to tycho crater and they go down to the monolith which is sitting there kind of unearthed there's a hole they've obviously dug this whole big rectangle out of the uh, the lunar surface to get down to it and uh it sends off um i think does, does haywood floyd kind of reach out with his hand to it and it, it sends off yes, that he does that's so that that hand gesture happens in all three segments right because i believe one of the apes reaches out to the monolith uh haywood floyd reaches out to the monolith and of course at the in the very last old dave bowman in the bed reaches out for the monolith um so that gets repeated in these different things. But anyway, the, there's a loud sound and everybody goes down and it turns out that this is uh, just the we, we are told later a strong radio signal that is a pulse that is sent in the direction of Jupiter. Although at the time watching the movie, it's to me at least unclear if the monolith has just killed everybody on the moon or not. No, it just hurt, hurt their ears really badly. Yeah. You know, I'm reminded when watching this of how much is not in this movie, but that is, although I haven't seen this in years, that is apparently in, in the 2010 movie and book and all the other things that I've said. Because they don't, I mean, they don't explain, all that stuff you explained about how is explained in later books and movies much more explicitly in this movie. Sure. TMA1 is shown in this movie, but not explained in this movie. Right. right? Like It's kind of like this movie didn't really want to explain a lot of stuff, but subsequently said we have to. I, I think the one thing that, and it ties in with the Dawn of Man sequence is, and, and it only, it's like you said, uh, you know, that eventually it's sort of the root cause of Hal losing his mind is that Hal's got the secret and knows it's an important secret. Um, but the whole, one of the reasons I, one of the things that's interesting to me about Haywood Floyd is that most of what he says, most of his lines of dialogue, he's foolish. He, he's lying. Yeah, he's a bureaucrat. He lies to the, and, and he plays it so stone cold. Like when the Russians, the one Russian guy gets a little pushy asking about it and, and 
<laughs> and eventually he kind of gets mad and he's like, look, I just can't talk about this. You know, like I was being polite by feigning ignorance, but if you're really going to press me on it, I'm just going to, I'm going to become a dick. But the, the theme that ties in is that the, the Donna man thing is it's tribalism. There's a tribe, there's another tribe. And the the whole impetus to keep this secret like Haywood Floyd said something about like uh, we don't want the people to panic and stuff like that but I think the main reason they want to keep it secret is they want to keep it secret from the Russians it's yeah. it's the the gut you know he says that's that why we see the Soviets the right Russians. but the main reason they want to keep this secret is this is to keep it secret from the Russians and that's what gets them into all this trouble later in the movie mm-hmm. and I feel like like the message is that tribalism is a thing that we've you know if we want to move forward as a species we've got to we've got to get past that it's it's like a le- it's like a less funny version of the big boardroom scene in uh strange Club, actually <laughs> yeah yes and get to get back to phil's point once again it's i give you tools monkey no no don't do that with them uh you know again Meat bags. what are you doing <laughs> again so there's another thing about watching old movies is that uh it's sometimes hard for me to remember that some of this is just what old movies were like and not read it as like, the, you know, you mentioned the politeness, right? The sort of oh, the way adult society was portrayed as far, you know, in movies, because I, I was in, alive in the 60s. So I don't know how what adult society was actually like, but the way it's portrayed in the movies is exactly like you see it here. People following the social code of politeness to a degree that we would find cloying today where everybody is polite and doing the social like every conversation between any adults in this section of the movie does not feel genuine to me even when it's just supposed to be a bunch of the boys hanging out and eating sandwiches on their way to the crater (laughs) right all of their interactions and speech with each other is so stilted and dressed in this performative adult maturity and masculinity that reads as phony today and i think most of that is just like oh that's that was the idealized version of adulthood as portrayed in the 60s but some of it is also in contrast to the screaming mewling apes that we came from right i read it a little differently because i think that it's it's also kind of trying at several points in this movie i feel like they're trying to get that astronaut mission control voice and attitude across because there had been space missions right in the 60s yes. and so uh you know from uh from Mercury and Gemini um, and I felt like some of what they were doing is trying to trying to ape that um, NASA you know cool oh, yeah they have the guy who calls they, discovery who does like an over-the-top version yeah yeah but I feel like they, when they're eating the sandwiches I felt it was a similar kind of thing they were trying to get off there see the sandwich eating scene I think is the most realistic scene in the movie <laughs> because you have three middle-aged white guys complimenting each other on how well they had just done, mm-hmm. contrary to all the evidence that we had seen. <laughs> and the, well, that's what I'm saying. Like, they, like believing in the fiction, like they're, oh. even when they're all in that boardroom, they're all constrained by the social need to pretend we all believe this BS and to pretend it's not ridiculous that we're being asked to sign an NDA at the end of it and everything like that. They can't even complain about that, that no one can make a peep because it would be breaking the social you know the the taboos yeah. of the time that don't don't make waves be be a go along guy uh you know keep the women and minorities out like all of the sort of the social structure of the 60s and w- how constraining it feels as a modern viewer to watch adults have to interact in this way i think some of that though is is part of the, the a theme that kubrick really kind of uh goes pushes all his chips on the table in in the the next act which is basically 
a, a lot of this uh, that might take during the movie is who, who's really the human in this movie? Because the yeah. humans really <laughs> act robotic, and the robotic the robot acts human. So it, part of the the very stiff, very prim, proper conversation, I I think feeds into that um, uh, drum that Kubrick beats louder and louder as the movie gets on. Mm. That the uh, that the, the the people are kind of um, very um, very uh, very much more. More like Hal than we would care to admit. Like I said, I just find it as a great contrast with the the things that we came from, which did not have any of those social graces. And I always, like whatever effect they put on the screaming apes, like some kind of reverb or just like extra shrill and punctuating and waving our arms in the air and and beating our chests and jumping up and down. This is the, these are the same folks, and now they're now they're walking even more upright and lost most of their hair and are pretending that they're not those things with the bones i got a chicken for you ham for you (laughs) (laughs) getting better all the time going back to my original viewing of the movie i took this this sequence of the movie as just being a different iteration of the savagery of the ape men uh where it is it is performative it is it is peacocking it is chest puffing it is it, it is the kind of bluster and um societal you know we'll 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 sort it out in the elks lodge kind of stuff that kubrick absolutely absolutely loathed um and even i will we'll talk more about how i'm sure but mm. i it, it's it, it it is it is one thing to say that you know some of the things that hal does are, are definitely uh you know uh, in the in the human way of thinking things bad things to do um but but if anything uh i you know if if these stupid meat bags had just uh you know let him let him do everything the way he was supposed to uh, that's that's what he was supposed to do in the first yeah. place. Uh, so I, it, it the the further the movie goes on, the less the less uh, the less plussed I am on humanity. Uh, so thanks, yeah. thanks Kubrick for yeah. making me a misanthrope. That's great. Uh, but, well, but Dave Bowman is is fairly heroic and emotional and is Dave's the identifying great. character because eventually he starts getting pissed off at this freaking computer and we're more or less mm-hmm. rooting for him when he wants those pod bay doors to open. As, yeah, as stupid meatbags go, Dave Bowman's pretty good. Let's get there. Let's get to there. So, okay, we are now uh, headed for Jupiter on the uh, on the Discovery One. Later. Eighteen months later, um, there are there are uh, three scientists in uh, suspended animation, and there are two astronauts who are um, who are also scientists. They're both doctors, Doctor Frank Poole and Doctor David Bowman, and they are piloting the Discovery One headed to Jupiter, and uh, they are joined on board by basically like a sixth crew member. It's HAL nine thousand, the talking computer, who uh, they who is uh, the his, the nine thousand series computers have never made a mistake. They are perfect, and he has basically because they're a, from Urbana, Illinois. Yes, they are. Um, the uh, the um, they have nice conversations. They even interview Hal uh, on the B- on the BBC, which is kind of fun. They uh, they are doing their exercises, so we get a lot more of the, the the way these sets were built and the way they were shot to get that idea of that you're out in space. They we get the uh, the shots of them running around in circles around the the um, the track, which is basically just this centrifugal uh, spinning part of the spaceship that gives them some gravity and so we get a lot of those scenes that are these completely 
wacky scenes where they're running along the inside and then they or they they float up the little tube and then they turn and then they go down into the gravity so there's a lot of kind of mind-bending stuff there they've got all their screens they get their kind of long distance interviews and messages sent back and forth on uh, on video from earth um and and then of course in this segment we end up with a fault on the ae35 which is the antenna back to earth um frank goes out uh, no, Dave goes out to f- to fix it and replace it with another unit. They bring it in and analyze it. It turns out that it's fine. Frank goes out to put it back to try to figure out what's going on. Hal doesn't really and understand. Hal, and Hal suggests. And Hal suggests. Yeah, Hal. Hal just doesn't know what the problem is. And at this point, uh, Hal rams his pod into Frank and shoots him off into space, basically to murder him. Well, after after he saw that they were plotting against him. Yes, we. we yeah, there, there's a critical detail. The, there's, yeah, that is that is a key is that they, they find that it's fine and and they're like, well, how could it be fine if Hal says there's a fault and Hal never says what's wrong. He just says that it will fail. And so they go to a secret location, which is in one of the pods where Hal can't hear them. But of course, he can read their lips, which is what he does as they plot about how they're going to have to basically disconnect parts of Hal's brain if he's malfunctioning. Then Hal suggests that that Frank go out and uh, replace the unit. Uh, Hal kills him. Uh, Dave goes out to retrieve uh, Frank's body in kind of a hopeless attempt to save him, even though he's already dead. He brings his body back. And then, of course, the famous scene where Hal won't let Dave back in. Dave didn't bring his helmet with him, which is not great. And uh, we get, Which I, Hal knows about and noticed and didn't remind him when he was leaving. By the yeah, way, you might yeah. want to take your helmet. You notice you're going to find that very difficult without your space helmet, Dave. And, and so, many, so, so many space movies have been have been influenced by this. I, I We could not even, if we just listed them off, we would run out of time. But I will say that one of the things that struck me watching again is the scene where somebody who is not prepared has to do, uh, has to go into vacuum and hold their breath and try not to die and mm. survive. That... I've seen like 10 versions of that scene in movies now, but I believe this is by far the original that everybody is copying where Dave gets back on board through the emergency airlock, even though Hal thought that he couldn't. And at that point, Hal tries to sweet talk him, but Dave is pissed off. He is not listening and he goes (laughs) straight to the main computer and starts detaching all with his little key, all the little glass uh, 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 rectangles just keep sliding out of Dave's or of Hal's brain as Hal uh, tries to uh tries to get him to stop and uh eventually a video plays and it's haywood floyd saying now that you've reached jupiter i'll tell you a secret only hal knew that we found this alien artifact and uh you can investigate and it. the three scientists who were in hyper oh hyper- yeah and how how kills yeah, them I'll in kill a them chilling scene where we just see their individual they're like they've got five different life readings and they all on uh, we see them all just kind of slowly go into the red one by one by one and then there's that beautiful long shot where it's like nothing is changed inside the discovery except we know that silently hal has murdered three people in that in that moment so so this is the this is the part of the movie other than the very end that everybody talks about and uh, i open it up for for there's so much here let me just point this out how how in the world was this movie g-rated there there <laughs> there was it in the opening scene there's there's a murder of, of the the you know the the monkeys they brutally murder a guy yeah. and then there's there's another guy who even gets like like one of the beta males like starts getting cheap shots in like starts kicking the guy they beat a guy to death and then there's a whole bunch of murders there's four four crew members got murdered How in the I, world? I will answer that question because in 1968 if there were no cuss words and no <laughs> boobs it was fine yeah. yeah the stewardesses were fully dressed mm-hmm 
It's got to be the most violent G-rated movie ever made. So uh, another another bit of uh, table setting for this, as much as I think a lot of us know about the the practical effects and all of that other stuff, and we, we sing their praises and everything, uh, I think one of the great achievements in acting in this sequence, as iconic as Hal's voice is, the voice that we know uh, Hal having, they didn't have on set. They had they had an English actor at one point uh, um, that that was that was dubbed over uh, uh, what they had on set, which was one of the assistant directors out at Pinewood who to as I've been on stage with Keir DeLay and Gary Lockwood a few times this year at conventions. Uh, the the best approximation that I have is I'm sorry, Dave, I, I'm afraid I can't do that. <laughs> Apples I think and you pears, know what Dave. the problem is just as well as I do. This mission's too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it, Dave. I know you and Frank are planning to disconnect me, and I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. It's like one of <laughs> Sorry, the Sorry, God, Kenneth, yeah. and them pod beetles. Oh, yeah. Cool. Oh, so cool. Sorry, can't blow the bloody doors off for Michael Kane. And, of course, the the final version is Douglas Rain, right, who is the, the just the, just a chilling, stage actor. chilling performance by Douglas Rain. But, but also, em- also empathetic, even before they start pulling his brains out, like... You, they do this amazing. Like he doesn't have an expressive face. He's got the eye, which is ominous, but it never actually moves. And there's not even any kind of on-screen animation personification of him. He's no. got screens, but they aren't personifications. But the voice always, it's like he is it's calm, sophisticated, it's calm and soothing. Right, but he's also like he's also clearly a child, right? Like he's a sophisticated, incredibly intelligent computer with pride and his uh, track record and everything, but. All the conversations, it's it's clear that it's like a genius child and not a malevolent evil adult, like through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this this section of the movie is, I mean, I'm not going to say it's, it's the thing they got the most wrong because a lot of the stuff is wrong in terms of the timelines. But the 1968 understanding of computers like comes through in this movie in that not just the extrapolation of given where we are in the 60s, here's where we'll be in 2001, but just fundamentally it's it's not a it's not a question of quantity it's a question of like type like we can make electronic calculators and calculate blister trajectories therefore how 9000 it's like you have skipped a lot of steps um and you haven't really thought those steps through in terms of like a computer that makes no errors right something created by man that has no errors like the idea of software doesn't come in here like as, as, a, as a modern person you're saying all right so humans made this but it has never made an error that's not how we create like the, bugs are a thing like how can you create something as sophisticated that never makes a mistake surely in making it you made mistakes and therefore it must have always made mistakes and the idea that you could that it's a hop skip and a jump from ballistic trajectories in world war ii to HAL 9000. That isn't supposed to even be the amazing, fantastical part of this. To that, to that point, the, the iPad, the, you know, the, the slate of glass computing device that they have is, is almost a glorified clipboard and data entry device, and that's it. Well, and then they, and they're separately writing on, on paper on it with a pen so yeah well it was, they couldn't do anything very sophisticated with the displays like so they had to, they did a good job of hiding the crts by trying to make it look flat but they really like you didn't have that's that's why they use like when the ships are landing they use what i think of as the star wars effects where it's just a bunch of like vector lines right like sort of like a transparency with lines on it and they just you know do a frame by frame right with a bunch of grid lines you know but that's but the thing is like they they massively overestimated the advancement in essentially what's known as software to get to the point where like computers are so smart and 
and fast, surely by 2001 we'll have one that has never made an error, which is absurd on its face, setting aside the, the AI stuff. But they were so pessimistic about the advancement of hardware in terms of what will screens look like and how will we interact with them. Because they didn't have any, like... They, d- they didn't have any capacity to understand what that would be like. But a computer, you're just like, well, I guess the computers will be like super intelligent humans soon enough. So we can just stick that in there. And the idea of playing chess against it, like, like they didn't have computers that could beat everybody in chess then. So it seemed like you're showing off. But it's like today, you know, we computers can beat humans in chess yeah, but I, pretty I thought, easily. I thought computer chess was good because that's actual like computer chess on a screen is a real thing. And they, they I think they extrapolated that. But I will say the reason that Hal is intelligent is is uh extrapolations or not is thematic right he is he is the ultimate tool that we humans build that we've been watching the tools of humans all along and now we've built a an intelligent creature and and it kills us but um you know i i always viewed it like that's why hal has to be intelligent is that hell hal is our last you know our, our the last thing we built basically we've built another life form here but but the story doesn't commit to that angle because if it does then how would go into the monolith like the idea that we're going to build ais and they replace us the story is not interested in that it is that always in the human <laughs> well that was obviously that was obviously hal's plan though yeah, yeah but, but human right. primacy is so clearly the message of this is like the computer is defeated and discarded and the humans go on on their journey whereas like the the proper conclusion of this is that we create the things that replace us and humans remain the stupid meat bags and and disappear in the dustbin of history and how marches on but that does mm. that's not how this movie turns out no. the, the, there's an interesting um a scene or at least it was interesting to me um and it's the one where Hal starts uh quizzing dave about hey doesn't this seem funny to you this oh, whole yeah. mission and um it, it, it's it's interesting because when dave's all when dave is all no oh, how i don't notice anything uh odd about this that's when Hal does the oh the um the uh, antenna's failing. Just, a, really minute, just go, a minute. Yeah. 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 No, you it, should go check that out. It's a cry for and, help, basically, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and and basically, I think that's the moment that Hal uh, figures out, I've got to get rid of these people because they... Well, the thing is, Dave, Dave recognizes what Hal is doing. Dave recognizes. And so... Dave shows that he's smarter than Hal thinks he is. He, he's more emotionally why, intelligent, that's for sure. Why, that's be- why Hal has to do something else. He has to change his tactics. But 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 does he but does he drain? Because I think it harkens back to the chess scene earlier where uh uh Hal beats Dave playing the chess and goes, Dave, you didn't see the moves coming ahead. And so Hal is plotting out this 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 chess move where he's gonna uh, say that the thing fails. It's not failing. Hal figures, I'll tell them to go put it out there and, and test that it fails again. And uh, that's that'll give me the uh, the, the opportunity to, to start uh, uh, separating the wheat from the chaff. As uh, it were. All right. So, so wait, let me get this clear. You're what you're saying. I, I've never heard this theory before, but you're saying that Hal Hal didn't make a mistake. Hal did lied purposefully about the AE. Oh yeah, for, for sure. Oh, I don't he think lied so. purposely about it. I don't no, think I, so. I, 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 I actually think he did lie purposely. That was his cover. Yeah. He, he realized these humans are going to screw up this mission, yeah, so he, I've got to get them out. Hal decided to kill them at the just a moment scene. Just a moment, just a moment. At that point, he he had hatched his plan and was going to execute. Now, the reason he hatched it, I am very heavily influenced by the subsequent you know movie where it's saying like, well, the reason he did that is he couldn't handle the fact that he was told to keep information from the crew, which is why he initiates that conversation to hope that Dave's going to figure it out 
but Dave doesn't figure it out. He's like, what do you mean? I don't know. It doesn't seem. And then he's like, oh, God, these humans. Forget it. I'm going to have to kill you and do it all myself because I can't handle the internal tension of the mission that I'm supposed to accomplish. But I'm also got you humans here, but you're not supposed to know about it. But how can I do like that's that's the the backronym or retro, you know, what do you call it? Uh, retroactive continuity inserted in this movie. And it makes sense in context. But I totally think when he goes just a moment, he is he has decided I got to get rid of these guys and makes up the thing about the the unit. My read on that scene, and I don't give two craps about 2010. I've never seen it and never will. So I don't care. Uh, my read on it is, I like this theory. I'm going to think about it. I give I give credence to it as a possibility. But my read has always been that Hal has a legitimate bug and that the just a moment, just a moment is is a glitch that that's where the that's where the bug takes place. Like, well, And you could argue, he talks so much about perfection. You could argue that once right. there's a bug and there's nothing wrong with it at that point, that could be, you know, that that sets right. off the whole same same chain of events, right? That now he's not perfect and he, he's out of control. What he can't cope with is he can't cope with the fact that he's made a mistake yeah, yeah. and that it's everything a, goes wrong from there. that's always been my read on that and that the just a moment thing repeating which he never does he speaks flawlessly everywhere yeah. else is a manifestation of the fact that he's having a glitch it's interesting though i i, I like the theory though that he that he lies about it but i don't I, i've always read it as a legitimate glitch and that and to me it's reinforced by headquarters houston saying that their twin niner Niner, what? Niner zero zero. Yeah. Whatever that sure, guy yeah. says. Twin Niner you know. thousand, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, right. Says, yeah. Right. That the, that, that Hal's twin computer back home doesn't, doesn't make the error and says, uh-huh. no, the twin, you know, the, 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 the one we have here says there's nothing wrong with it either. And that their plan is to, you know, turn him off. But, and, but that fits, and let in, the that fits with home. both theories. To me, like, that, that's the exposure that Hal is, is pulling up, pulling a fast one. Yeah. But, Cause Hal's got a different environment. The reason that I, I, I think that it might be well you guys tell me why um I don't see why Hal if if it isn't a legitimate bug where Hal is mystified by what has happened why does he have um Dave go pull the AE35 put in the replacement bring it back inside for analysis why doesn't he kill Dave as soon as Dave is outside with the pod why does he go through the rigmarole of 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 putting it through the wash and then taking it back outside to be reinstalled. Because he's got to get them both. He's got to get them both at once. He's got to get Frank outside and have him, like, you know, drifting off. Then he's got to have Dave go after him and lock him out. If you just kill the one when he's outside, you got the one inside who can still unplug you. Yeah, but that's, in hindsight, that's, that's what happens. It doesn't, it doesn't seem like a great plan, though, because I, I, I've, and this has always confused me, is I'm not quite sure what, how plan was if dave hadn't forgotten his helmet right or if dave and also he has to be assume that dave is human enough to and concerned enough about his fellow astronaut that he's going to go get his basically certainly dead body i would guess that that's actually policy and that how yeah, right knows you don't want to let him, let him well, float I mean, out not there. just that but like we know we know that he's a goner because we saw his little tube which by the way this is the worst space food design ever do not have a, a dangly tube a that can catch on things with your oxygen no it's bad right? <laughs> yeah. to your body bad design but anyway yeah we know that because we saw it with the omniscient eye of the camera. But he doesn't but know that he doesn't he's know. dead. He just knows yeah, right. that Frank is drifting away, okay. and he's got to go get him. He's not like he can put, look out a window and see that the hose is disconnected. But you're right. Hal's plan is contingent on Dave forgetting his helmet. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not a great plan, and, and part of the, the the glitch part of it is that he this there's this internal tension 
you know, again, in this theory, that that Hal can't resolve like it is. He's trying to resolve the unresolvable, the idea that he has to do the best and always be correct and be honest and truthful and support his crew, but also keep a secret from them. That's an essential part of the thing that he can't handle it. And that this thing like he goes haywire, like it's not like a nefarious plot that is perfectly executed. This is the manifestation of him not being able to handle it. And so he hatches this plan, which is not a great plan and not particularly well thought out as a you know, that's sort of this is the fallout of a essentially the crashing of his you know central operating uh, you know the, his modus operandi to be a flawless execution engine for a plan but it's impossible in this situation but again that's just one possible theory as with so many things this movie is not interested in telling you which one of those theories is right like yes. it's not going to you know just like the monolith <laughs> no. right see my take my take has always been that it's a real bug how can't handle it and and it, it, whatever you want to call it emotionally he loses it and like a child he lashes out mm. and and kills I mean, Frank. That, that fits perfectly too. And both of these things right. also fit with the lip reading scene because, like, when they in the lip reading scene, they're like, "We got to kill Hal." That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is, "What happens if it turns out that the thing doesn't fail?" Because they don't know. They're like, "Maybe it'll fail. Maybe it won't." We got one computer says it will. One computer. They're not convinced that he's broken, but he might be. There's certainly a conflict. So they're saying, "If the thing doesn't fail, we're going to disconnect him." And the main reason that freaks Hal, Hal out is because Hal yeah. realizes it's probably not going to fail, and I probably made a mistake. And so right. now I have yeah. to, I, I, they're going to kill me and I got to stop them. Right. And, uh, you know, or, and, or in the other theory, Hal knows for certain that it's not going to fail because he made it up. But either way, either he's, way, he initiates the kills because he's like, they have a plan to disconnect me. And it's not just like, oh, well, if this happens, let's connect me. I more or less know this is going to happen. So if I'm going to do something, I need to do it soon. And, and I, you know, he, he is maybe the most human thing that Hal does is he doesn't have the whole plan, right? Like he's kind of playing it by ear, arguably, when he kills Frank. Like, I, I got to get Dave too. Oh, Dave's going out. Great. Uh, you know, I'm going to take the opportunity and I'm just not going to let him back in. But like, I'm not sure he's thought all those moves ahead because he's, he's, you know, he, he's malfunctioning. They're just a moment thing is is a malfunction in both of the theories it's not like a a you know it's his ploy to speak in a weird way right. it, it is indicative of a glitch because as as john said he speaks perfectly you know calmly and eloquently without repetition the whole rest of the movie this is this is things going wrong can we talk so phil made a point earlier about saying the the um you know second most human character in the movie and the most human character in the movie being hal presumably i wanted to mention um frank Poole's phone call with his parents for his birthday <laughs> that is such a weird scene <laughs> oh man that is so weird it is like he is getting a telemarketer call yeah and he just like is like yeah sure whatever play the. he, he cares more about the angle of his on. yeah more <laughs> cares more about the angle of his pillow than he does like this the birthday wishes from his parents back home it's super weird and that that that's one of those scenes that makes me like um like who are these people <laughs> like who are these guys they're, they're idealized parents in the 60s who have a giant cake for you even though you're not there yeah yeah and frank frank and dave are the right guys for the job to go on a you know whatever i don't know how it, i know it they said it's 18 months after the yeah but i think they've been meeting, out but, for like four months out on the mission or three or four months yeah, on the, the mission. bbc guy tells him yeah. tells you but if you know the guys who are you know they're the right guys who really don't even miss their <laughs> Yeah, really and they, they can be awake while the other scientists are asleep, right? So they can, right. they're like just all alone out there. The two, the, those two guys, yeah, because they Jupiter. have no inner life. Well, yeah. yeah, well, and they also touch on the delay, like which is you know that's why he's not responding to his parents in real time because it's a pre-recorded thing and it takes sure. whatever seven yeah. and a half minutes to get there. But then when they when they mention that, they immediately show the BBC interview where the guy burns seven minutes on a question, which is like, how are you guys doing? 
Yeah, they gotta wait seven minutes for their turn to say we're doing fine. My my head canon has always been that he sent a pile of questions and then just and had them all the react answers. to them and then they interleaved them. Yeah, that was always how I figured they would handle something. You gotta like do follow up questions. You can't just have all the questions ahead yeah, of time. I mean, you, start, they, you send the, them a package like and then that. you do the follow ups later, right? I think yeah. it was Drang who mentioned that that the steadiness, the lockdown camera for most of the movie, really, it, it, when a camera does move, it really. it's more emotionally effective. And one of my favorite shots in the movie is after Dave comes back in through the airlock and he, he's leaving the pod bay area and he has to go up a ladder to get to where Hal is. And it's all handheld. It is, it is the least (laughs) lockdown. And it it is just a fabulous shot. And I've actually seen the behind the scene shot. It's actually surprise, surprise. It's Kubrick with this massive 70 millimeter camera on his shoulder doing this. And it, it, he followed, you follow Dave up the ladder and, and he actually moves the camera, but you can tell that it's handheld. It is handheld by one of the steadiest hands of, you know, cinema history, but it's definitely handheld and it just gives to me this sort of, it, it just conveys cinematically the, this whole thing is off the rails. Yeah. For, for all the, uh, fi- the, fi- the fixed camera talk with, with Kubrick, he really knew when to go to handheld because he does right. it in Strange Love. He does it in Full Metal Jacket. And just at at the proper moment, he knows when the camera needs to move and move with the character. Yeah, this is right. Dave it, Bowman, and he is it, he is enraged, and he is yeah, this he is, is the moment of catharsis. Yeah, he is going to kill this, the, the thing enemy. that killed his colleagues. Right, this is what's going to happen right now. And he's just and he's just chock full of adrenaline, mm-hmm. right? And he's done, it, it, and he's he's done almost talking. died in the airlock, right? Like he, but because he's Dave Bowman, uh, he is controlled. Right. Well, and, and the weird thing about Dave and uh, and uh, Dave and Poole is that when we meet them, if anything, they come off more robotic, more emotionless, more computer like than the computer does. And because of the the way that we that we have the delivery of the voice and the cadence of the speech coming from Hal, we uh, there was there was one word in particular that Gruber uh, ascribed to Hal that is something that that conflicts with you know we all we all have uh, our various different uh, interpretations of things conflicts with my my feeling about Hal which is the word emotionally we ascribe emotions to this this computer that has a voice that makes it sound human that the cadence of it sounds you know gentle and soothing and calming and and we we layer the assumption of human features onto this computer and and if anything when we meet Hal and and the guys the the roles are reversed the computer comes off more human and the guys come off more robotic uh and and it's like we've seen this progression from ape man to future man uh where it's just it is just so so emotionless and so when when we get that turn from dave it's it's like he is going back to going back to his his species roots, as it were. Uh, and, and we're we're actually seeing that humanity in him for the first time. Like he doesn't get pissed off about that anything. The key that he's turning in the computer center is the femur bone for Hal. Right. Yes. Oh. yes. How, about, how about that line of dialogue where Hal Hal says it's I think I got it exactly. I think I have the line, but he says, I think you're going to find that difficult without your helmet, Dave. Yeah, I mentioned oh. that before. The way he says it is so cold. Oh, and yeah. he goes, I think you're going to find that difficult without your helmet, Dave. 
It is gloriously passive aggressive. That, that, yeah. The whole the whole thing where um, I I really like where he tries to say Hal a bunch of different ways, hoping he'll respond. Hal, Hal, yeah. Hal, <laughs> Hal, Hal, and finally Hal responds and, yeah. in, in that just, even to tone. Show he'd just been ignoring him earlier. And it is so that whole scene is so chilling. It's so good. Like I I uh, again I hadn't seen this movie in a long time. It's got such a great reputation. The last time I saw it, I was I, I felt like it was a little boring. And this time I was completely riveted. And then this this. This segment is so good. Like, uh, you know, you're Dave Bowman, and Hal has just killed the other guy on the space mission and won't (laughs) let you back in your spaceship, and you left your helmet inside, and what are you going to do? And he taunts him, you know, from the outside. And so I am as enraged as Dave is when he gets in there and and starts unplugging Hal. And I'm fascinated by Hal's sudden change (laughs) in approach to humans once he's on the inside, where he's like, well, let's think about this. Come on down. Let's talk about this. Take a stress pill and (laughs) this over. Talk it over. Okay, stupid meatbag. I'm going to manipulate you now. I know exactly the ways to manipulate you, and I'm going to use all of them. Take a stress pill is such a great line. Literally, he says, so, so of course, the famous line when Dave's outside is, I'm sorry, Dave, I'm afraid I can't do that. And what's funny is that later when Dave is disconnecting his brain, he says, I'm sorry, in a completely different context, right? But it's like, it's too late, jerk. It's too late. Uh, yeah, it's it's amazing. The whole thing. Yeah. The, I, I the other it. thing I noticed about the segment, um, and, and again, perhaps this is just me reading things that aren't there, but you've got Hal, who's this unblinking, steady red light, and that's what you see. And you've got Frank and Dave, who are just have a blink fest throughout the movie. Hmm. Whenever they're they're the 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 camera is on them, and it, rather than uh, suggest that they are human, it, it it adds to the unnaturalness of the of their presence. That they just seem to be. I have heard that the humans blink, <laughs> so I I must blink now to. And it, 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 again, it's just something. It's one of those things when you watch a movie five, six, seven times, you you begin to go. Did they do that on purpose, or is it just that they had stuff in their eye? I wanted to mention something about the space, the the outer space stuff, especially when they're doing the work on the AE thirty five unit, because um, and and later we get more of this. It's the um, the sound in this movie in general is pretty amazing. Um, you get the, not only is there the use of music where it's the classical music pieces, but you get the, just the breathing in the helmet a lot. Um, when they're in space, there's no sound in space, but if you're in a helmet, you get that helmet sound. So we get the, we get the helmet sound when Frank is attacked, we see the stuff flying around, but of course it's silent because of that. There's a lot of really great sound stuff, but during the, the, AE35 stuff there is it is a long scene like so many of the scenes in this movie where they are you know where Frank is going or no Dave is going over and then he's attached and he's getting the thing out and pulling it out and putting it and puts it by the side and then he puts the replacement in and all of that is happening and what I'm I'm struck by when I watch that is if anybody remembers like when CNN in the 80s and 90s or I guess the 90s aired a lot of NASA stuff live including very specifically those Hubble space telescope repair missions but the thing that blows me away is that's the same like it's literally the same as 2001 in 1968 what the space shuttle did in the 90s where there's a guy in a spacesuit who's got to take the parts and it's all super slow and all you really hear is people's breathing and occasionally i mean like 
I, I just, it amazes me, again, for all the silly things that are not quite how the future turned out, some of the space stuff in 2001 is exactly right. <laughs> and it's amazing. So, like, like slow that airlock scene and, that you and boring. <laughs> and, <laughs> but yeah. Everyone imitating the like entry in the airlock without the helmet scene. Uh, obviously, that scene has the very dramatic, because you, you hear the labored breathing all the way up. That one, that scene has the very dramatic cut of the sound, because as soon as he goes into the airlock, you're expecting an explosion, because you've seen caution explosive bolts literally three times leading up to that, yep. right? And then they cut to the explosion, but of course, it's silent, right? That airlock entry scene, down to the silence, has been copied so many times. So many like, times. So the, the silence in space is one thing, but like the particular, the contrast between, it's usually even more more hubbub, like the alarm or the buzzing or whatever, like tons of hubbub inside the capsule, culminating in a absolutely silent explosion uh, into the airlock, and then the sound coming back as the air fills the airlock, which is a detail that usually movies leave out, but this movie keeps in. I mean, it's not, it's movie sound, like it's not true to life, like it sounds like they're in scuba gear, right? But the effect is... We, we know what they're getting at. It's movie yeah. shorthand, and it works really well. I think the most remarkable thing about this segment, this this whole the, the discovery piece, is that Kubrick managed to drop a Hitchcock movie into his movie. It's a it's a complete mm. movie yeah. all by itself, sitting in there. It stands by, it, you know, and it's it's the part of the movie that everybody remembers because there's dialogue and there are things that you can quote, and a lot of people like to quote movies. I don't think it's necessarily better than the rest of the movie but it is this complete little movie that is incredibly suspenseful partly because um well all because hal is this tremendously malevolent presence in the sort of classic uh, dr moriarty kind of way where he's very cool he's very calm and he's deadly also i would say that we can't use any of our tricks that we use when we're judging our fellow human beings to try and read them and understand what they're thinking it's impossible with hal you can't do it no it i don't think it is because because the visual storytelling we we go back <laughs> no you shouldn't be able to because we go back and we see Hal and we see his eye we see the red eye and you know what Hal's thinking yeah. hmm. well the the hitchcockian moment it, the the classic hitchcockian way to build suspense is to let the audience know something that the characters don't know and yes. that moment is when Hal reads their lips just before the intermission. Uh, I, I thought yeah. it was when the pod turns around when Frank has left the pod and he's off floating, but the pod is still in the shot because the camera is fixed and the pod starts rotating. Yeah. You know Frank's not making that thing rotate yeah. and you know Dave's not doing it. That's the moment. That's the turn where you're like, because you know Hal is doing also, it. Also, why we have to see why we have to see Dave in the first place do yes. the laborious maintenance is because we know that that didn't happen with Dave and now it's yeah. happening yeah. with Frank. Right. And, and as soon as it turns, like that's that's their wordless way of saying Hal, Hal has taken over and you know it's not turning to go help Frank. And that that close up as it zooms in of the of the red eye on the pod. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. It's not it's not uh, a particularly friendly look with with the red eye. Like it's not it's not a friendly like they didn't put a friendly face on him so he'd be no. uh, personable. Um, I, I do think they 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 pin they they uh, shine a light on this whatever hang a lantern on this early on where they're like. Uh, the HAL 9000 computer, which can reproduce or some say mimic 
human mm-hmm. emotions. Like they they won't even they won't even nail that down. They won't even say is this a very accurate simulation of human emotions and it's Who really totally alien intelligence. Is it pretending to be human? Is it just is it fakery? As in like you know again with our modern understanding of how computers actually work, the chess computer is dumb as a rock. Like it doesn't. Oh, you can beat humans in chess. That must mean you're amazingly intelligent. We can have a stimulating conversation. Nope, you cannot. Oh, you can win a Jeopardy. You must know everything. Nope. Like the way these com- we have made computers do things has no connection to how we as humans perceive the problem or do them ourselves or at least perceive how we do them ourselves so in the same way in this movie they won't even say is this actually ai or is it like the world's most sophisticated alexa and siri plus jokes right it's you know you don't even they won't you don't even know people it's contested i don't i just think the lip reading thing is just so brilliant and again sound design jason where where, when they cut outside the pod and we go to hal's perspective and they and he starts setting up the shots that show that he's reading lips completely silent Mm -hmm. just dead maybe there's like a little bit of space whooshing yeah that's the other point noise that that's it just just like when he kills the guys after they're dead and they're no longer the beeps from the console all that's left is we still have one of those shots that moves through but all you get is that same spaceship whooshing there's no sound which is kind of brilliant because it it proves their point that hal can't hear them while also proving that hal can knows what they're saying doesn't need you and and then they go to intermission that's uh, intermission Intermission. another movie thing yeah, it's not halfway through. It's like three quarters of the way through. But cutting into intermission right after you show the audience, and guess what? Hal's reading their lips. It's a, a good. It's a good uh, act break. Yeah. Okay, so time to go to Jupiter and uh, and the the, the, the infinite and the beyond. infinite beyond. Yes, indeed. Uh, so beyond the infinite, right? In this beyond the infinite, beyond, yeah, yeah. The, beyond the, the infinite. Yeah. So anyway, they get to Jupiter. Uh, Jupiter is, appears in a couple of shots, but uh, at that point, we didn't have a lot of great imagery of Jupiter, so it's all kind of washed out and all that. The point is, the monolith is at Jupiter, a large version of the monolith, and Dave goes out in the pod, uh, or in a pod, and um, v- then there are lots of split scan effects of like he's like it would cut with uh, like stills of his reactions as he's going in some super you know, weird, trippy someplace, somewhere, uh, all of which is, it goes on for a long time and there's a lot of really creepy music, but it's an interesting visual, uh, sort of, uh, set of images that we would get there. Um, it's followed by what I would call the most boring part of the movie, which is a lot of solarized stock footage flying over various landscapes. That that yeah. part that part feels dumb to me. Like I'm not impressed by your solarized floating over the ocean, your solarized landscape of like a field or something. I know they're getting it. Like he's being brought, he's reached his destination. He's being brought to a uh, a place somewhere. But that goes on for a long time, and is, those visuals are not interesting in the way that the other visuals are. They feel kind of cheap. I will to say me. this: my seven year old daughter wandered into the um, wandered into the room just as the last segment of the movie was playing sat down and is saying is is it colors oh it's colors and it's time collapsing upon itself and i'm all you tell me because i I don't know yeah i have my my interpretation of the the solarized landscape things i mean this isn't this isn't many more valid than any other especially in this segment because there's like not much to hang your hat on it is really a rorschach test like sometimes literally um but my take is that what is being shown once you get through the initial entering the doorway of the monolith uh, business is the creation of the universe because it shows kind of like white stuff spreading out as your big bang and galaxies forming and spreading 
And then once they switch to the Earth landscapes, uh, it's like, and now planets are forming and the early Earth, like that he's being taken on a tour of the history of the universe leading up to, to a larger understanding. But there's, I mean, that's, you could go in a million different directions. Yeah. As I watched this with my daughter, who's 11, and she's a trooper. She sat through the whole thing, watched the whole thing. And by the time we finished watching it, particularly, you know, asking about the ending part, this is, this is what she said, and I wrote it down. Uh, describing her her confusion about like especially the ending of the movie it's like they lay out a plate of of mysterious substance and have you stare at it for a long time her her interpretation involved food as if someone is laying out a plate before you that Uh is this movie and then they have you stare at it for a long time yep that's as valid as my interpretation. My son came into it with a slightly negative. He was he was expecting not to like the movie, and he because he had heard that it was slow. He heard that the whole movie was slow, and then it's over. And we talked a little bit the intermission, but then afterwards, and he liked it. He liked it overall. He, he kind and it it pains my son to admit he was wrong. So he 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 acknowledged that he really liked it. Thought it was really good overall. But his thing was he thought that that the Starscape sequence was way too long. And I was like, you know what? I think you're right. Yeah. But you have to understand that in 1968, that was. The the sequence that people kept coming back to see over and over again. I think those solarized landscapes were maybe more impressive at at that time than they are now. I think the slit scan stuff with the, with the like the beams of color and stuff is really uh, still kind of spectacular. But the uh, but I I just the solarized landscapes seem just kind of like uh, kind of too many. kind of cheap and there are too many of them there. But I suppose if it was 1968 and you were really really high, it might have been super awesome. So <laughs> yeah, I, I was about to say Gruber. That's 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 the point where you say, well, son, there was a thing called LSD. Yeah, and. Uh, <laughs> yeah. People were very fond of it. It's like, well, yeah, that's, that's just a that's just a field, but the green is sort of orange. Yeah, and the close yeah. up of the eyeballs and everything. I find uh, the yeah. slit scan stuff way more interesting than the landscapes totally. because it is. I mean, you could do yeah. all that on computers today, but I like the uh, to do it on a computer. You'd have to make an artistic choice to make those things look a specific way because it's not like. You know, like the things they do in the 60s to take like a, a pool of colored liquid and put it in an overhead projector and swish it around like more kind of like you're going to get what you get because you, you can't control it down to the pixel because we haven't invented a pixel yet. And so looking at that stuff, it looks interesting and impressive to me. And if someone had done it in CG, I would applaud them for their creativity and coming up with exactly what's going to be flying at me on what plane. Now, obviously, they go through the iterations because they were so, they were a little bit pleased with themselves. Like, look, we've got the one where it's top and bottom. We got the one where it's left and right. We got the one where it's just the bottom. We got the one where it's just the top. Have we hit all the permutations? It's like, we got them all. 45 degrees? No, switch to the landscape. It's fine. Yeah, what's funny about that scene to me is I do find it interesting up until we get to the solarized landscapes. And... Um, it's, I don't really care about, I don't care about plot. I don't care about characterization. I mean, I care about them in movies where those are the important things, but sometimes movies are just about showing us interesting things and keeping us interested in the visuals. And you can do that with real landscapes, as we see a little bit in the, in the Dawn of Man sequence. And you can do it with fake landscapes and entirely man-made landscapes, which we see here. But God, the solarized ones, uh, they, they just go on and yeah. on and on. And I can't believe that even in 1968, people didn't think that went on a little bit too long. And I can, I can come up with a reason for why we've changed from something that's 
you know, completely unnatural into something that is Earth-like and obviously Earth-like. Uh, and, and I guess it's because we're getting Dave prepared to check into the hotel. Right. Right. So, and we're, it's okay. That's fine. And, and just before you go into the solarized landscape, there is this weird, um, uh, part where you're seeing like the four or five rotating diamonds. Right. Uh, and I think that comes just before the solarized landscape. I think so. And so I assume that that those are the aliens. Or that has something to do with the aliens, aliens or their ships or something. It certainly that's, that's, that's exactly. the album cover. That's the most album cover yeah. scene in the movie. Yeah, that's yeah. that's true too. That's a prog rock album, album cover right in the movie. So I I wanted to say, um, what would this scene be like if it was a little bit if we used more modern technology and it was a little little bit more literally somebody from Earth going to visit aliens? And the answer is just go watch Contact because yeah, exactly. Robert Zemeckis did that scene, and I think it's a really great scene, but it is a much more literal literal scene um dave bowman never says that they should have sent a poet although he could yeah. have um or, or maybe he should have said they should well, have sent some, they, should they, have they copied a lot of stuff from the 2001 including the cutaways of her face and yes, contorted abso- positions no, and absolutely stuff. like like contact is a, it, that scene is an homage to this scene but with a little bit more um of a direct uh, narrative through line and, than and, what and, dave and bowman because gets. they because they had control more much more control than in these days they the the deliberate choices they made in contact to show it as a series of tunnels to show that you're traveling from left to right in the frame and you're going past a planet that's on your right like they they have to lay this stuff out whereas this feels so much more like they just had some ideas that things would look th- uh, of things that would look cool yeah and they just let them play out even if you go with my theory of like showing the big bang and galaxies forming and spreading it's mostly just like something white blobby from the middle spreading out <laughs> some things spreading like but the, but in terms of the details of exactly how these things are going to go they th- could didn't have control over that they're just dripping liquids into things and you know like it's not it's not a it's not a thing that they have control over so they just sort of let it happen and film it and pick out the most interesting bits that fit their vision it's more like assembling a collage from pictures you cut out of magazines than actually making your own drawing of exactly yeah. what you want and, and what what this movie is trying to do at this point is say again we're being taken somewhere that is beyond human comprehension and then the last scene we get is with dave um in the hotel room basically and it's a series of things that are stitched together where you know he's in the pod looking out at the hotel but then he's out of the pod looking back at the pod but then he's looking through a uh, he goes into the bathroom and then he looks back and somebody's eating dinner and then it's him eating dinner um and then he looks over his shoulder and there's some there's an old person dying in a bed and it's him who's dying in the bed and then the monolith is there and he reaches out with his hand for the monolith then he becomes a baby and the baby is around the earth and the moon and the movie is over at that point so and they kissed they made a baby and the baby looked at me <laughs> the baby uh star child <laughs> is around the earth and that's the that's the end and uh i don't know there, this is the scene that everybody has a a billion different interpretations of is Dave is Dave in a uh, space zoo where aliens are are looking at him is he are they you know is he being judged on the realm of his entire life before being turned into the star child to be sent back to earth for some reason I don't know it's a super weird movie what do you all think of how this movie ends <laughs> the, the, th- the thing you just mentioned Jason about him he sees himself but mm-hmm. then the, the the self that he sees is the is the new self, and the point of view character changes and hops around to the other. That is a very clever but simple thing that gives this entire sequence a dreamlike quality. And that, sure, from the perspective of Dave, what must this be like? Like that, 
that the passage of time is that he's sort of unmoored uh, from time and that it's not it's not a linear experience like it's it, it reads very much like and this has been imitated in a much more explicit form in many other movies that this is an environment created by non-humans in an attempt to give humans a situation where they feel vaguely comfortable but it's totally off like the only human that would feel comfortable in the situation is probably stanley kubrick himself um and so it's the kind of dreamlike quality uh using you know no special effects just of simply you could put stage directions for this the main character enters sees a character that character comes to investigate what he sees but then now that's the character then he sees something else and it traces that bit of it reads well to me like you can skip over all the light show get to this position and say you were in you were in a situation not designed by humans but trying to make a human feel comfortable again contact parallels there um and that you you live out your days or seem to live out your days here and then we get to the star baby which is a lot harder to nail down well, as, as John just said, the uh, unmoored by time, and that sort of harkens back to when they were telling the BBC 12 interviewer what it was like to be in, in space hibernation, that it's just like sleeping, only you have no, you have no sense of time and no sense of place. So maybe that's what Dave has gone to as he's moved to this new higher elevate. I have no idea what I'm well, saying. Hey, but he says, they also says that you don't dream in hibernation too, which is that's kind of like the, a, a downer stinger there it's just like sleep except you don't dream and the bbc mm-hmm. is like great sounds terrifying mm-hmm. <laughs> i i've never been all that confused by the ending of the movie do you guys have you guys seen this youtube video that came out a couple months ago where there was some japanese filmmaker in like the 70s who who, who got F- kubrick on the phone and like uh, asked him like what the hell happens at the end of 2001 <laughs> no, and, and he told I, him it's I, all about moving off the gold standard right <laughs> no but kubrick gives <laughs> a, a, who who was famously resistant in interviews to trying to you know to he always just said i let the movie speak for itself i let the movie speak for itself and he gave him sort of an answer and it's sort of extraordinary but it's exactly what i always thought all along which is more or less that you know that these these alien beings uh you know Try to make Dave feel at home, exactly like what somebody said, and then he they they elevate him to like the next stage of he, he's you know he is to man what man was to those apes, and so yeah, we, he's, we, he's we don't baby. understand. He's, he's yeah, a baby in the new form of life. There's nothing more to get, and we can't get it because we're we're stupid monkeys, you know. And he's already a you know there is nothing more to get because we can't get it. You know what I mean? It's I've always thought that one of the most interesting things back when I was a Dungeons and Dragons geek was okay, you get a character and he's got seventeen strength well i you know you know how to do that you can pretend that you're super strong or whatever but how is somebody like let's say one of your friends is a dummy and he rolls a character with 18 intelligence well how is a guy who's a dummy gonna play a character with 18 <laughs> intelligence it did it's it seems to me like in D D, instead of rolling dice for intelligence they should have given you like a little iq test sure. and you- <laughs> It's called acting, John. Yeah, but you can't come up like like your 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 party is in the, all of a sudden in big trouble, and you're supposed to be super brilliant. You should be able to come up with a way to get out of it. But in real life, you're a dummy, and you can't do it. Yeah, and actors have but, scripts if they want to act smart. Uh, yeah, clearly we we've got the various stages of of humanity, and the the impression here is that the monolith is one again, once again. Uh, intervening us along. in our progress right and saying now you've reached the next stage and here it is and and uh you know and then that's that is where the movie ends so that that's the great question is like what is the next phase of life the the star child is back around earth the the same place we saw the very first shot of the movie right and we're back there now with the star child dave bowman has taken this journey um and you know and then it's open that's it 
the 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 credits by the way the credits roll there are no credits until the end of the movie it's a very modern movie in that way very few movies were done like this back then where Correct. where the movies the the all the credits are at the end instead of uh having many or all of them at the beginning i think the reason the star child uh is confusing to a lot of people is because it, it's almost as if the star child and this is kind of implied by the point of views especially since they, that whole sequence is about point of view changing what's your point of view character or, you know it's like and i'm with dave bowman and he sees an older dave bowman eventually your point of view is the older dave bowman and he sees an even like the jumping so the point of view when we get when he changes from the old man in the bed into like the floating embryo switches to now you are the point of view character is the monolith at that point because you see him from the perspective of the monolith which is at the foot of the bed and anyway the 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 thing i think that makes it a hang-up is the on-screen representation of this next leap in evolution is a human baby embryo right and that's uh, like symbolically we, we understand it to mean you were at the the pinnacle of your hairy ape evolution and now you're at the very beginning of a different evolution but the way they visually represent that is with the infant embryo version of the hairy apes which you know communicates the message to the audience but if you want to subscribe to it you kind of have to believe that that's not actually what like he doesn't literally become an embryo floating in space because that makes no sense it's just this is how we communicate as filmmakers this is how can we communicate to you the audience that this is what's actually happening which i think works and is very unsettling because we uh, we relate to the embryo and plus they do did a pretty good job with the soft lighting of not making it look like a weird creepy doll but it looks a little bit like a weird creepy doll yeah. um especially it, around the eyes the oh, insistence especially after so seeing creepy. all the the beautiful spaceships which i haven't really mentioned before but all the very realistic and beautiful spaceships going to sort of a movie where it's going to be very literal and what you see on the screen is what's actually happening to this ending sequence which ends arguably in a series of scenes which are not meant to be taken literally but meant to be understood with the dream logic or magical realism movie logic to convey the message and i think that's where a lot of people get thrown off uh what what is the what's the deal with when i I still don't get it like and i feel like there's got to be something to it and i just don't get it is when dave uh breaks his glass when he's eating at the table in in the hotel it's a dramatic moment and you can't you can't help but have uh, like the the stillness and the the sort of like thoughtful pace of that whole thing is punctuated by him breaking the glass if there's a deeper meaning i never interpreted i just took it as like good filmmaking you have tension and you break it somehow right i took it as i took it as potentially a moment of realization for dave where he's understand he's uh, it's it's like he's coming out of mind control. It's like he's coming mm. out of sedatives, and he's he's regaining some awareness of something is not right, something is not normal about this. Wait a minute, where am I? What's going on? Yeah, I I, I, I like that. I like that take on it. I do think that there's something to that, and it it does seem like his facial expression pre and post breaking the glass is a little bit less sedated and a little bit more what WTF. <laughs> Yeah, well, and it's almost like an imposition of actual rules that he that he understands and we understand, like that if you drop a thing, it'll break, where this has been this incredibly unreal environment. And that's always how I took it, too, is like, oh, it's it's like a regular place. I can I can break a glass here and it actually breaks. It doesn't reform. It doesn't come back up. It doesn't bounce. It actually just breaks that it's it's a little injection of um, reality in the situation maybe that does make him snap out of it i think the thing that he it's that he knocks over the glass which is an indication of infirmity that he's mm. he's losing control of his mm. body slightly and that's the precursor to the stage yeah. where he's lying in Being bed, in the bed. Yeah. yeah yeah 
That's good. But he coasted for a good, you know, 30, 40 years just on the joy of having so much better food than those those uh, sort of ground-up Muppets that he was eating out of trays on the space station. <laughs> better-looking silverware, Like Fozzie Bear just turned into, like, goo. brown felt, and then he, yeah. he scoops it out with his little fork. But here, this place, everything's on fine china, and all the meals are prepared by, you know, the best alien chefs. It's a big upgrade. While you, John threw in the mention to the awesome spaceship design, which truly, it, it, it is it's just so beautiful. Um, can I just say I, one of the things that I love about this movie in terms of being get one of the things that, that Kubrick got right was the concept of like, I would just call it like a retina display. A, the displays are all flat screens. They're not CRTs and there are no visible pixels. And the way that they achieved it was that every single screen you see, all those HAL displays with those little three-letter acronyms and whatever they show, it was all rear, rear projection. projection. Right, right. Yeah. So they shot everything on film and had little movie projectors behind every single one of those screens projecting it because they didn't have screens that didn't have visible pixels. And then when you look at subsequent movies for decades, like like Star Wars in 1977, well, like Star, that whole, Star Wars did the same tech for the TIE fighter cockpit and the, and the exhaust port targeting thing. Same thing. It looks like what we would say considered to be vector graphics, but it's just a series of transparencies with light behind them that you can do at a much higher resolution. Right, but then the big screen in the Death Star where they show the progress of the Death Star getting towards uh, yeah, Yavin a, 4. Yeah, very interlaced. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I feel like the interlacing is intentional in Star Wars to show the dirty future in terms of like the Leia uh, hologram help me, you're my only hope with the interlacing because at that point we knew what that was like and they wanted to have the dirty effect, but the the targeting stuff is like... I mean, they had the actual computer effects with the Death Star, but um, you know, to, to have real type, you know, it's it's all of course uh, Euro style or or uh, forget the 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 predecessor to Euro style is the the typeface that all that stuff is set in. It's a real typeface. It's not like a monospace typewriter font or something like that. No pixels. And then like another one that I watched recently that has just the worst. Like it looks like like they literally shot it with like a, a Commodore sixty four. Is the the mother computer displays in Alien? In Alien, yeah. It, I was gonna say it, it, the Alien displays are so bad. Oh yeah, they're, they're like it's like a, it's not even a Commodore sixty four. It's like a Vic twenty. But they make it like, up, make up for it with the number of buttons. Yeah, it's so bad. Yeah, and it's curved. It's curved to the, all, a lot of the stuff that was shot on CRT. You, you've got the curved yeah. glass of the CRT, whereas yeah. these things are absolutely flat. People should go, by the way, I'm just going to put in a plug right now. If you have enjoyed listening to this episode, go to typesetinthefuture.com. Yes. And you'll, there are a lot of great things on there. And you can buy Dave Addy's book, which has a whole big thing about 2001 and Alien and Star Trek, the motion picture. They're all in there, along with a bunch of other things about how type is used and uh, visual design in science fiction movies. It's and yeah. Speaking speaking of books, there's a really wonderful book called Space Odyssey, who uh, which uh, Kier Delay himself uh, says, "Look, if you only buy one book about this movie and the making of the movie, buy that one. Uh, it's incredibly readily available at this point, and I'm, I'm surprised that more people aren't talking about it. It might just be that movie's been around for five decades, and enough people have recommended enough books and articles and all that kind of stuff about the making of the movie. Well, I I really enjoyed revisiting this movie. I have to say, I had that one of those moments of like, oh, is this going to be one of these, you know, two and a half three hour slogs uh that i'm gonna regret because the last time like i said i definitely got the impression of like oh it's so slow and i don't know what my frame of mind was but i was in a much better frame of mind this time and i came to appreciate all the parts uh, all the different segments in different ways and uh and the you know when the the uh, tension gets amped up as hal is trying to kill everybody 
it is that's great and then even the end other than the other than those landscapes the stock footage of landscapes that made me sad otherwise even the end uh i really appreciate it so it was fun to revisit uh this film everybody else uh feel likewise uh, I'll, do, I'll do a little survey of final thoughts before we say goodbye dr drang let's start with you well i you know i love this movie and uh and i i see different things as you always do when you see movies uh, multiple times um, first time I saw this movie was in either 1976 or 1977 when it first came on television. And um, then I saw it uh, I saw it projected on a big screen in college. It was being played in a lecture hall uh, as sort of a fundraising thing. And I don't know, you know, it might have been 35 millimeter. Um, it might have been 16 millimeter. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, that was... Um, that was when I was a student at the University of Illinois, uh, which is in Urbana. And so when the I became operational at the HAL plant in Urbana, Illinois on the 12th of January, 1992, came on, there was, as you might expect, a huge eruption from the crowd. We were all waiting for it, of course. It is, it's a movie that was, um, you know, for almost a decade, it was the science fiction movie. There were there were terrible science fiction movies before it, and there were terrible science fiction movies after it. And until that movie you guys all like, Star Wars, came out, there there was not this. This stood out. This was it. Uh, people who like science fiction really had only this place. This place to go. And what's amazing is to. You know, I'm sure there are people. I know there are people. My wife is one of these people. Who did not like the movie. Thinks it's dull. Thinks it's boring. Man, I just don't see it. I, I look at this and I am fascinated by it, and I don't care whether the human characters are dull. I don't care whether you know what Haywood Floyd talks like. It's I find something interesting in this movie throughout the movie, except for the solarized scenes after we get through the first couple of them, and and I don't think that that will ever change. Phil, final thoughts? Yeah, uh, I had my little uh, my my little snark at the beginning about it's the fourth best Kubrick movie, but it's it's I enjoy it. I enjoy rewatching it. You always pick up something new. That's the sign of a really great movie that um, it stands up to repeated viewings and rewards repeated viewings. That said, uh, watch Paths of Glory because that's a that's a good one too. Okay. All right, little little Kubrick, uh, little Kubrick promotion happening there. Moises, final thoughts? Around the time this episode drops, uh, there's a new 4K Blu-ray out there. That if you have a 4K TV and a 4K player, great. If you have an iTunes capable or a 4K capable uh, Apple TV and uh, and iTunes purchases and that kind of thing, if you're going to watch this thing, watch it in the best quality you can. If you don't have a 70 millimeter revival screening of it coming to you, um, picture quality, audio quality, experience quality is important for all movies as far as I'm concerned. But especially for your first viewing of this movie, this isn't the movie that you allow yourself to get distracted by your watch or your phone or something uh, the first time you see it. It is it is a movie that that fundamentally you do not you do not get what you're supposed to get out of it unless you're watching it the way that effectively you would have in 1968, uh, which is one of the reasons that I love that the new 70 millimeter prints that have been struck have been classed as a non restoration that they just used good quality uh, film stock and just left it alone and didn't futz with it and didn't mess with it. Um, there are so many things that. 
exist in this movie because of the photochemical process that they went through making it. That, yes, if you're watching a digital version of it in an IMAX screening on your TV at home, yes, there there is a digital divide. But it's it's reproducing the analog experience of the way that this this movie blew people's minds 50 years ago and continues to do that today. Um, so if if you if you have an opportunity to see this uh, in the best presentation you can possibly get the first time I saw it was on VHS uh, and then I've seen it many, many, many times since then. Um, but I've, I've stressed, uh, you know, in my mind, if I can see it better, if I can see it bigger, then I've absolutely got to do it that way. Um, there, there are few better movies to see, uh, in, in a way that costs you a little bit more than renting something for four bucks online. Um, but this is absolutely one of those things, um, that, you you may go into it, uh, you know, like uh, you know, like uh, like some some people uh, who have seen it, some people's kids, some people's relatives, and so on, who expect that they're going to hate it because they hear it's boring and it's long, and there's a whole bunch of you know waiting around, and it's not made like modern movies. There are, there are still modern movies that we've elucidated a few different ways in which those modern space movies are just telegraphing bits of what was done in two thousand one. Not just first, but in many, many cases, if not all cases, better. Um, people are still trying to recapture that lightning in a bottle in a way that, that might be nigh impossible. Uh, but yeah, around the time this episode drops, I'm, I'm doing my best to get something of a composite episode of, of my show, Electric Shadow, out that, that uses bits of uh, a number of different interviews that I've done with Keir uh, DeLay and Gary Lockwood uh, over the last year about the making of the movie, working with Kubrick, um, you know, how sometimes they'd be summoned into his office and think they were in trouble. And he would just be like, hey, how'd the day go? Uh, please avail yourself of my bar. You want me to make you a drink? You want, a, you want an old fashioned? You want a martini? What do you want? Um, but it, it's it is it is such an astounding achievement. Um, don't don't let uh, hipsterism convince you that. It's it's just a reputation and not an experience because it, it really is one of the great cinematic experiences out there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, John Gruber, any final thoughts? Uh, I'll just echo what Moises said. <laughs> it really, I hate to say you have to grade it on a curve because I don't think you do. I think it stands up. I think that I were right that the 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 solar solarized landscapes are the one part that really doesn't stand up and maybe was a mistake all along. I don't know, uh, but. Uh, man, it is such. Uh, it, it's not just that they don't. Modern movies aren't like this anymore. There's no movie before it that was like it. Like the the pace and and screenplay structure of this movie is just extraordinary. It's it's so different and so it, to me works so well. But it is just so unusual. And and as a one two punch as a filmmaker, going from Strange Love to this is is just such an extraordinary one two punch in so many ways because. Thematically, they're two of the biggest issues you could tackle. One is the current, you know, a, a real come to grips look at, hey, we've made devices that could blow up the earth. Like, what what does that really mean? But then to shoot it in such a, a low to the ground, black and white, you know, it, it's, cinem- it, it's well shot movie. It's gorgeous. Don't get me wrong, Strange Love. But it looks like an old movie. It looks like a movie from 1962. And then the, the next movie he made is this movie that looks so modern today. It's it's absolutely 
extraordinary. And the other thing I would just say to leave it is if you get a chance to see it on a big screen, don't pass it up. It, it, maybe we're too late coming out with this because the 50th anniversary tour was around. But if you ever have the chance, it, to it always see- pops up in revival houses. Right. I saw it in a revival house in LA in the 1990s uh, on the big uh, screen. And I'll just say like just one scene where it just it, when, when the, when the spaceship lands at Clavius base and as a, it goes down on like the, the elevator from the outside and gets lowered down and it's just real long shot. And you see so much detail inside that base. I, I, it's just extraordinary. There's all these little rooms and there's people in there and they've got screens on and like I, I, it's just absolutely remarkable you know how well it stands up it's just truly great so see it on a big screen if you can and john syracuse any final thoughts this movie i kind of class with a lot of movies that i saw as a kid that really just bowled me over that just blew me away either because it was something i'd never seen before or something that had never been seen before like i, I would class like star wars blade runner this there's very few movies in this category that are just so singular and so defining and uh i you know the my my reverence for this movie started from the the first time i saw it. like it last i was more of a a fan of star wars and even and even of blade runner but this movie was it was almost like those movies were made by people who are kids at heart for kids and this movie was made by an adults for adults like it seemed more sophisticated and in many ways the filmmaking is more sophisticated but it was just so unlike anything that i had seen now as i've as i've grown and seen this movie many many times over i think at this point like some of the like you could say oh it's this this is it's about the pacing and the time and so on and so forth but i think some of the decisions about how this movie comes together don't work as well as they would have liked and we mentioned the end part of it um like the individual scenes are brilliant and the individual segments are great but the way it all fits together particularly the end part which most people agree is too long uh like where they get to is fine and that but there's it's just i have to ding it on you know how well does it hold together but the thing is everything that's great about this movie is great and different mostly because it's 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 a situation where like if anyone else either had the inclination to make a movie like this or a script like this, someone or many someones would have told them, that's probably a bad idea. Why don't you consider doing it slightly more conventionally? And, and that happens with every movie. You get notes, right? Or someone is in control of, of like, they're not even going to let you shoot that script because it's ridiculous and it's three stories and it doesn't make any sense and no one's going to understand what's on the screen. And like many Kubrick things, somehow, and even Hitchcock to some degree, it's like the singular the singular vision of like, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and I'm not going to accept your notes. And that's why the brilliant scenes will be brilliant, but that's also why maybe some parts of it could have been tightened up or reconsidered or done in a different way. Uh, so you take the good with the bad, but overall, this movie has so much good in it, and it is so profound, and it looks so good to this day. Like, you know, even the space scenes, like... So me, show me a bunch of CG space stuff that looks any better than these cardboard models. Like, granted, yep. it's it's on easy mode because it's the blackness of space and a single light source and artificial things with rigid surfaces. I understand that, but it is such an achievement cinematically. Like even now, like I'm looking at like the the people floating through space, and it's like how like how did they make something <laughs> that would look so good for so long? Right. And, you know, yep. the, the, there's like one flub in this movie, which is the floating dinner tray, which looks looks dated. But everything else down to the stupid pen, it's like it's perfect. You did it. You did it as like as well as it will ever be done. Right. There are no mat lines. We can't see the strings. 
you know, it was a carefully chosen effect to fit, but it fits. But, you know, and then just, you know, all the Kubrick magic, all the scenes, the framing, the, the pacing, the, the, the dialogue, even the acting, like the, 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 those scenes with Hal in that middle section, they don't work if you just read that script, right? You have to actually have it paced and intoned and shot and edited together so that that very simple little dance between that limited number of characters actually works. Um, so I'm not I'm not as uh, blown away and as reverent to it, uh, you know, as I was when I was a kid. But it's definitely in that pantheon of movies that and I guess maybe this is kind of like Blade Runner for Jason that like it's not a movie that I love and want to see over and over again because I feel like I did that as a kid. Like maybe I burned out on it. Like even Blade Runner, I'd watch repeatedly more than I'd watch this. But like like John was saying before, Kubrick movies, a lot of them you have to you have to get you have to get fastened in. You have to be like, you have to be ready for this is a thing that you're going to do because they take you, they take you on an emotional journey, which you may or may not be prepared for. Like, even though you've seen it before, like that it's inspiring and dramatic and it's a, a ride that you're going to be pulled along with, whether you can help it or not. Like, I challenge you not to pay attention to this because it just draws your eyes into it, except maybe for the last little bit, but then it gets you back in the end. Anyway, thumbs up. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thumbs up for 2001. Thumbs up. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think so. In short, 2001 is a land of contrasts. You should see it. Uh, and I think that brings us to the end. So uh, having everybody given their uh, their uh, final statements, I will I will close things up. So thank you to those people who gave their final statements. Dr. Drang, Philip Michaels, Moises Chuyon, John Gruber, John Syracuse. Thanks to everybody out there for listening to this edition of The Incomparable. Uh, we're slightly shorter on this episode than the runtime of the movie. So um, you're welcome, and we'll see you next week. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore, Jason. The the end of this podcast can only be attributable to human error. Uh Oh.